Hi, this is Pastor Scott Stroud, and I'd like to thank you for joining us online today as you're watching this sermon series. I know that COVID has had a big impact on the church, and many people have been viewing from home uh, for three years now. And so, if you're one of those, thank you for coming and interacting with us online. But I would also like to extend a personal invitation to come and check us out here at Elam. And we know that fellowship is very important. According to the Bible, we should not uh, give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And as you're thinking about, can you come now and, and venture out and join us uh, in, in person, uh, we would like to invite you and welcome you into the fellowship aspect of our worship time. Hope to see you soon on some Sunday at 10 a.m. been in literally hundreds of Christian homes in my life and have seen many wall hangings and art depicting messages of faith and devotion to the Lord. But far and above the rest, one verse stands out as the most often used passage for these uh, pieces of art, and it's found in our text here today. It's in Joshua 15, the second half, which states, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When you think about that statement, it's kind of defiant. Even though others will not serve the Lord, we will in this house. When I see this verse on the wall of an entryway or a Christian home, it tends to come across as almost a confrontation against the culture. Out there, the days are dark. People are serving themselves or the devil. But you're in my house now. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I was really troubled by this section of scripture because a couple of questions kept nagging at me. The first question was this. Why did Joshua challenge the people to choose that day who they would serve? Whether it was the foreign gods of their forefathers or Jehovah God. And then go on in the very next verse after they had declared their allegiance that they were unable to serve the Lord. The second question that plagued me was, why did Joshua think he was so special that he could serve the Lord when nobody else in the whole tribe of Israel there could serve the Lord? I was laying pondering this in bed when the Lord turned a light bulb on in my mind. I wasn't approaching this passage in the right way. Because when we read the Old Testament, one of the goals is to see Jesus in those passages where he's very clearly showing himself. And this is one of those passages, although it was so clear that I didn't see it at first. Joshua is the Hebrew version of the name Jesus. And there are many parallels when we look at Joshua and Jesus. And we see another one here in chapter 24 of the book of Joshua. And I believe that the reason that Joshua could confidently declare that he and his house were going to serve the Lord while the rest of the Israelites were not able to serve the Lord was because he had the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him. Listen to Deuteronomy 34.9. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the Spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord commanded Moses. This sounds very similar to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, which describes Jesus. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, 
the spirit of the Lord, the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. And so the revelatory moment for me was that Joshua was not declaring, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Rather, the spirit of Jesus declaring through Joshua was that he and his house would serve the Lord as priests and kings to his father. And this makes absolute sense because Joshua was a man, just like all the other men in that tribe of Israel. He had a propensity to sin. He had a propensity to stray. But the difference was, was that he had the spirit resting on him, which was unusual in the Old Testament. And so for the rest of the message, I want to make some connections here, some lessons that we can learn in the New Testament as Christians now. Lesson one, the sense that I can do anything on my own is an illusion. One of the greatest problems of understanding how the Christian life works is that the Bible is filled with action language. Go and preach the gospel, do good works, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, make disciples of all nations. But we must understand that all of these actions are, in a sense, passive. When we think about how good works flow out of us, the best biblical text that describes this is John 15, 4 through 5, which says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches." Whoever abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Notice a few things here. First, fruit bearing is passive on the part of the branch. It doesn't sit there exerting itself to try to make more fruit or bigger fruit. The main job of the branch is to stay connected to the vine, right? The vine provides the energy, the nutrients that it takes to produce the fruit. Second, Jesus didn't say, apart from him, it would be harder to do things. Or he didn't say that you could only do some things apart from him. He states the shocking truth that apart from him, we can do nothing. As Joshua said, you are not able to serve the Lord. But you might argue, well, don't we have free will to follow the Lord and do all the things that he wants us to do? When it comes down to it, the only choice, the only choice that you have is to either allow the Holy Spirit to continue his work in you or to rebel and walk away from the Spirit. Listen to Ephesians 2.10. Here Paul describes this work that God's doing through the Spirit. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so, this is how fruit happens in your life. This is how these things that you do that are good happen because they're prepared for you beforehand. It's like this. God is like the owner of a great train company. You're that train, 
And he's planned out an intricate network of tracks for you to travel on in this life. Those tracks are the good works that he's prepared ahead of time for you. And so the decision for you is clear, right? Are you going to stay on the tracks or are you going to try to jump the rails? Now, if you've seen a derailed train, it's not a pretty sight, right? The reason that trains are not designed to go very far is because they go on the track. Once they get off, they stop, right? As God's creation, you were designed to follow his plans and purposes. And some of you might ask, well, how do I know whether I'm on the track or not? Well, are you attending to the Spirit? Or are you just going through your life thinking that you're the train company owner and you have all these decisions that you can make about your life? Lesson two, God's holiness is unapproachable without Jesus. Israel in the Old Testament was an example of, for us of what it was like for people to try to do righteous acts without the Spirit of God enabling them to be consistent. And at, a best, uh, at best, it was a, you know, an effort that had a lot of failures attached to it. And so it is for us when we attempt to live the good life without the Lord. I was golfing with these guys the other day, and one of the guys found out I'm a preacher. And he said, oh, I'm excited for heaven, you know, with the cigarette in his mouth and, you know, the curse, like, the whole, you know, whatever, cursing up a storm. He's like, oh, I'm excited to get to heaven. I said, well, how do you think you get to heaven? He said, by being a good man. You know, I'm a good man. I'm going to get to heaven. I said, eh, wrong. <laughs> I said, that's the most common answer I get, but that's wrong. And then we went on to have this sort of awkward religious conversation in the middle of it all. The reason that we can't get to heaven by our good works is because God is holy. And we must serve him in holiness. He's absolutely blameless. And even the smallest blemish will cause his wrath to flare out against you. One of the best biblical um, stories about this is in regard to David. David and his army had recaptured the Ark of the Covenant. And so they're bringing this Ark back into Jerusalem. And they're going to put it in David's house. And so they're dancing and rejoicing. There's music on the road and everything like that. And suddenly one of the oxen stumbles. And the Ark's about to fall on the ground. And so Uzziah reaches out his hand to steady the Ark. Boom. Dead on the spot. Drops down dead. And David's upset. <laughs> you know, right. I would be upset. Lord, we got the ark back for you. We're worshiping you. We're celebrating you. Here, poor Uzziah. All he wanted to do was do you a favor and not let the ark fall and crash, right? And so he's upset with the Lord. Well, after a little bit of time, that anger actually turns into a different emotion. Fear. <laughs> Because at first he was planning on bringing that ark into his own city near his home. But after seeing what happened to uh, Uzzah, I'm not Uzziah, I'm sorry, Uzzah, he's not sure he wants that kind of power so close by, right? And there's a certain fear of the Lord that is very healthy for us. We recognize that his power, his majesty, and his might are so high above us that we cannot come near it without some kind of protection. 
I'm a bit of a storm freak. I love going out in the rain and like when it's pouring down, the wind's whipping and whatever like that. And so we were living in North Minneapolis and we heard the tornado sirens going off. There's a tornado coming through North Minneapolis. So being the idiot I am, I go outside and I'm looking for the tornado, right? Where's the tornado? Sure enough, I, I saw it. It was coming ripping through the North neighborhoods and it was about a mile off. So it wasn't that, you know, it wasn't that close to me. And it looked kind of like, you know, birds were flying in the air. You know, I, th I thought, what? that's kind of wimpy looking. But then I realized, oh, those are roof pieces, you know, and trees, you know, flying around. And then suddenly, debris started dropping on the parking lot where I was standing. And so suddenly, curiosity of me wanting to be near a tornado turned into, you're an idiot, get in the house before you leave your wife a widow and your children orphans. And so I went in the house and... You know, it's kind of cool to think about, you know, I want to be near that kind of power. You know, I want to get up next to it. But, you know, that power is also dangerous. David was no dummy. He had a healthy respect for the holiness of the Lord. And sometimes we may wonder why we have a God like that. A God that's so powerful and holy that we can't even look on him when we're in the flesh. But what kind of God would you rather have? Some kind of wimpy, vindictive God of the Romans or the Greeks who is more like a human than an actual God? If there's an individual being that has the capacity and the power to create the entire universe and then to hold it together by his powerful word, you better believe that you're not going to casually approach that. Right? But Jesus is our way to the Father. God himself has made a way back to him by offering his own son for our sins. And that's the point of Joshua 24. We cannot serve the Lord. You are not able. However, Jesus did perfectly. He had perfect communion with the Father, as it says in John 8, 29. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And so when we're walking according to the Spirit, we have life and peace, the same as Jesus had in communion with the Father. When we're walking according to the flesh, we cannot serve God, because our mind is set on the things of the world. Lesson number three, you've got to serve somebody. One of the key truths in regard to the spiritual realm is that humans are not at the top of the food chain. In fact, we're kind of low on it. And this is made clear not only in the Christian religion, but almost every other religion in the world, including Judaism, Islam, animism, and the Eastern religions. If you want something to go well in your life, then someone or something that's higher up the food chain needs to be appeased. So your crops will grow and you won't die and you'll be healthy and all of these things. Joshua actually addresses this in verse 15 where he says, And if it seems evil for you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served on the other side of the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And so in the words of Bob Dylan, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. A while back I was thinking about imminent domain because somebody came in the barbershop and they were talking about how the city was going to come and 
take their house because they were going to put a road through there. And I was thinking, you know, if the government really wants your stuff, they're going to get it. I mean, you have this illusion that, hey, this is my house and this is my land and whatever. But if it came down to it, you know, you'd lose it. If it was a fight between you and the government, they could come and take it. And we have the illusion many times that this life is our own, that we're our own master and commander. But the Bible makes it clear that you're, if you're not serving the Lord, you're serving the world. And according to John 14, 30, Jesus calls Satan the God of this world. And so if you're not serving the Lord, you're serving the world and serving Satan. In conclusion this morning, it's interesting to me that before we get to this part in Joshua 24, the Lord has instructed Joshua to remind the people of all the things that he's done for them, how he brought them out of Egypt, how he defeated the peoples who were serving foreign gods, and how he was going to bring them into the promised land and protect them. And as you're sitting here this morning, you might be wondering, is it worth it all? This following the Lord is hard. Maybe it'd just be easier to follow the devil. I mean, those people following the devil seem to have more fun anyways, right? They don't have to be restricted by, you know, lists of sins that we don't do and all that kind of stuff. And some of Jesus' disciples were probably thinking the same thing when they began to face opposition from the religious leaders and the crowds. But a man named Peter spoke up and declared some of the wisest words that have ever been uttered in the history of mankind. Words that I find myself uttering whenever I feel like all of this is not worth the effort. He said, where are we going to go, Lord? For only you have the words of eternal life. When I think back on my life without Christ, I have to say that I'm sticking with Jesus because in his house, I am able to serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your Holy Spirit that you've poured out upon us. And knowing that before your Spirit came and made us alive, we were not able to serve you. We were only able to serve the flesh and to serve the devil. And so thank you for the power that you've given us through your Spirit to be able to accomplish many great things in you those good works that you've planned out from before the foundation of the earth. Help us to walk in them and to not become derailed. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon series from Elam. If you are encouraged today, would you consider supporting our online ministry through a financial contribution? Personal checks can be made out to Elam Lutheran Church and sent to 11504 26th Street Northeast. Lake Stevens, Washington, 98258. Or you can give online at elamlutheran.net. Thank you and may God bless you the rest of your day.